Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Wednesday, May 26, 2021. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical economic issues worldwide. If you'd like to subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Patreon and Substack. My guest today is Sheila Warren, speaking with us from San Francisco, and our topic is the new, new economy and blockchain. Sheila is deputy head of the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, head of data, blockchain, and digital assets, and a member of the executive committee at the World Economic Forum. Her pioneering policy work is focused on shaping data and technology spaces to be more inclusive, equitable, and sustainable. The center is currently working with 100 companies and eight different governments. Ms. Warren began her career as a Wall Street attorney before turning to philanthropy and civic technology. She's also the co-host of the popular show, Money Reimagined, at the, on the Coindesk Network. She's an honored graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School. So a challenge for me to have both a lawyer and a fellow podcast host as my guest today. I think this will be a wonderful session. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Larry. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, so you have a background in economics, and as I said, you've trained as a lawyer. How did you find blockchain, or did blockchain find you? Yeah. Oh, you know, that's, oh, that's a great question. I've never heard it phrased quite that way before. I would say um, I didn't know I was looking for blockchain, so blockchain found me. What I was looking for was a solution to a particular problem. And uh, blockchain was suggested to me as something that could actually help solve that problem. The problem was one of security of a particularly sensitive data set uh, of nonprofit organizations. And um, I didn't really know blockchain existed. I was trying to find a way to work within the confines of GDPR or what I thought GDPR was going to turn into. This is kind of dating me back in the day. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's how I stumbled upon it is really the only way to say it. And then I, as many do, I became, you know, mildly obsessed, <laughs> probably very <laughs> annoying to everyone in my life for a little while. And here we are. <laughs> okay. So you became convinced, you know, that blockchain was a possible um, solution to these problems. But how does Bitcoin fit into blockchain for you? Because that's where blockchain initially came from. And I think what you're talking about, just for our listeners, are private blockchains. So I'd like to talk about the security of private blockchains and so forth. But how does that structure work in your own mind? And what do you think of cryptocurrencies then? Yeah, well, it's helpful to my origin story around this stuff. You know, I knew about Bitcoin well before I'd ever heard of the underlying technology or had any sense of what a blockchain or tribute ledger or any of that was. Um, I thought of Bitcoin as an alternative to gold. Digital gold was sort of my first orientation to Bitcoin. And then I frankly forgot about Bitcoin for a while. Uh, and then I came with this data problem, right? And that's how I got interested in distributed ledger and in blockchain. Now, for your listeners, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain, there is a technology protocol underlying Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is a necessary feature of that particular blockchain, but you kind of have to think about it in a couple of different layers almost. There's the technology layer, and then there's, of course, the, the currency layer. And then there's also this governance layer that sits kind of almost in between them that's really also critically important. So I spend my time thinking about really all three of those layers, and sometimes together, you know, and sometimes separately. 
So is uh, the World Economic Forum going to create its own token to <laughs> incentivize miners on? <laughs> yeah, that's not what no. we do. No, that's not what we do. Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> That would be something, yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the things that that you've talked about is, you know, um, uh, blockchain is really in very early days right now, nascent technology and similar to the internet. Um, so given the technical challenges, the regulatory hurdles, the market volatility, does nascent also mean risky? Is that just a necessary component of progress in blockchain? That's a good question. And I would say that, you know, certainly we are early, but I I wouldn't, I don't know that I would say that we're nascent anymore. And I think we have hit a certain point in the maturation curve where we're, I don't know if we're a toddler, preschooler, you know, we're further (laughs) along, right? We're we're nearing adolescence, let's say. Um, And I think that we're seeing, I mean, it is 10 years down the line for Bitcoin specifically, right? It's over a decade. And so uh, a lot has happened in that time. And I think there's a lot more that's happening The thing I think that's important, I'll answer your question about risk in a second. I think it's important to note is that this hasn't gone anywhere. It hasn't vanished. You know, it's still here. If anything, it's gained in, you know, value, certainly. Um, It's gained in uh, prominence. It's gained in all of this has only been trending positive over the course of time. So I think a lot of the current, you know, it's, are we going bear market or not, or this or that, there's all kinds of questions right now. This remains a very volatile asset. And so I think you have to have an appetite for volatility. And so I I can't say, you know, everyone has to conduct their own risk assessment. It depends on how comfortable you have volatility, how long-term, you know, are you thinking to some extent? Um, And so I perceive this to be uh, something that I think the point to land is that it's not going away. And, you know, but if you're looking to kind of make a quick buck in Bitcoin or in this space, that might be a challenge depending on when you enter the market. So it's going to go up and down quite a bit more. As to your point, it's hyper-responsive to regulatory signals or influence. And uh, that's not going to change, I think, for some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the economic community is kind of divided. And I think almost along generational lines, uh, pretty much, um, where they think, oh, it's going to go away. I, I think it's a great point. You know, there's an appetite for this kind of thing that, you do find, I think, that does tend to track generationally. Um, we talk a lot about digital nativity and kind of, you know, my younger cousins or those who are maybe in their early 20s, I don't know what, what, I don't know what after Gen Z is, but whatever that is. Um, you know, they're all, they're all digital natives. Even Gen Z are digital natives, right? My children are the generation behind that or maybe even two. I feel like we have these generations like every three or four years now, right? Micro generations. I think they're going to be crypto native. They're going to have this kind of concept of decentralization that underlies the way that they interact with the world more peer to peer. They're going to think that it is absolutely bananas that I ever trusted my information or data to some sort of centralized platform. So I think they're going to find that crazy. Um, I think that's the direction of travel here. And so as you get more understanding, more, there's certain kinds of mistrust, there's certain kinds of, um, uh, they, people want to have things be almost more tangible or immediate or direct in a way. There's going to be generational response to that. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how adoption of digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, blockchain technology in general, Web3, you know, all of that gets driven by generational change. Yes. And it's not, uh, and in addition to generation, it's also by government. So mm-hmm. in China, they're definitely, they're trending towards the, in the opposite direction, towards centralization. Yep. and a central bank digital currency. 
uh, they and they're trying to to uh, shut down um, Bitcoin and so forth and mining because they don't want a decentralized challenge to to their authority. So I think it is going to be in a very in, a lot of crosswinds here um, too. So. Um, so how do you think about um, central bank digital currencies then? Is that part of your the things that you're thinking about? And do would they play a role in some of the projects that you have? Yeah, we spend a lot of time thinking about CBDCs. We actually issued a central bank digital currency policymakers toolkit in Davos in 2020. That's now, you know, it's it's the playbook, if you will, for a lot of central banks that come to us. And, you know, we help kind of take them through it or they go through it. It's very, it's very um, self-service, if you will. Uh, the Bank of Thailand issued a report recently where they, you know, they took our workbook essentially and kind of went through it to decide whether or not to issue a CBDC. So, you know, I think there is this kind of weird, I find it very bizarre, almost winner-take-all concept that, you know, there'll be CBDCs or there'll be cryptocurrencies or there'll be stablecoin. I have never seen it that way. I think it is a landscape that is going to have a richness to it. There's going to be different of these that interoperate, hopefully, one hopes. Um, I think stable coins in particular are going to be a tool of interoperability, right, among CBDCs and crypto. So I, you know, it, it's not easy to make the case for a CBDC, frankly, right? There, there are a number of kind of conditions that aren't always in place. And sometimes just the way fiat's working works just fine. There isn't necessarily the problem that a central bank might want to solve may not be able to be easily solved just because the money suddenly is digital fiat, right? So I think the reason you haven't seen massive adoption by central banks of CBDCs is because it still remains a little unclear what actual differentiated value they're providing. Now, that being said, I do think when it comes to you know tra tracking transactions and things like that, there's a very clear advantage to a central bank if that is the concern. But I think some central banks that are maybe have a different orientation towards privacy or things like this are still waiting to see how the technology evolves and matures. And they're all doing exploration of this. That's for sure. They're all looking at it. But are we going to see anything that happens like, you know, this year uh, besides China? You know, I don't, I, I'm not so sure. Um, we we are in a kind of a wait and see on that. But there's no doubt in my mind that CBDCs will continue to be a, a topic of exploration and inquiry and experimentation and over the next few years for sure. And at some point, I do think we'll see a transition over into digital fiat, but I'm not quite sure that's going to be in the short term. We already have electronic money, you know, if that's the goal. Um, but this right. would be, yeah. be something that could de disintermediate traditional banks, for example. I can't imagine they would be too happy about that. <laughs> if everybody had an account at the, the Fed, system, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's yep. exactly right. So I don't think it's such a clear path you know, to get, to get there. And also I think it centralizes risk. It's a very nice, a uh, you know, question. attack surface for hackers. Yeah. So that's something that, that worries me, but I'm really happy to hear you talk about this variegated lands landscape. I think that's exactly right. It's not going to be winner take all. We're going to have all of these things in various iterations be there to fulfill certain functions. I think it is yeah, a multipolar financial world that we'll be living in. Totally agree with that. Yeah. And I think that just tracks with what we think people need and want from the system, right? So right. it's just kind of places. based on almost a common sense observation. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So um, one, you've described blockchain as the operating system for the new economy. Um, what are some of the projects that you have in mind or that you're doing now that you could tell us about that are utilizing this technology? And what is the advantage of blockchain? Why would it over MySQL database, for example? <laughs> right, right. Well, so I think I think that's a, a great comparison because I think, first of all, 
uh, let's be clear, you know, it is certain, I think we are, I hope at least we're well beyond the kind of hypey phase of this where it's a blockchain for everything. You know, uh, our first paper we put out when I started was called Blockchain Beyond the Hype. And it was kind of indicating, look, I mean, clearly there's something here that is new and novel, but it is not going to disrupt everything. There's not going to be a, you know, a blockchain. Now, the thing I think is important to understand is that I think there's this misperception that we're going to replace, you know, uh, everything with a blockchain. Everything will sit on top of a blockchain and that will kind of be our tech structure, our architecture. That's not really how I think it's going to work. They're going to be, it's part of a tech stack, right? So there will be uh, data that is housed within distributed ledger or a blockchain, other that's not, you know, it might things might move in and out, in and on and off a chain, you know, kind of things. So I think that you have to think about this a bit more fluidly and blockchain as a technology and like other technologies, it's going to be useful in some circumstances and not others. It can provide efficiencies in some circumstances and not others. It can provide um, transparency in some circumstances and not in others. And so I think we're seeing, and, and I think as the technology gets cheaper to implement, because right now it's not necessarily, it can be if you know what you're doing, but you got to find these people, you got to figure out your security, you got to figure out how you get things on, you know, what all these kinds of things are, are complicated. And the more complicated part of it is, what is the ecosystem policy you're enacting around this? Like when things move from an on-chain environment to off-chain environment, how do you govern that? All these things are not necessarily super, super obvious. And every institution is going to have a different point of view on what that might look like or what's beneficial. So ultimately, I feel like if you're talking about massive quantities of data and storing them, yeah, that's nearly not the best use case for a blockchain at this time. It's a bit too costly to do that. I don't I'm not sure what value you're really getting, but there are circumstances under which, you know, low trust environments or how we kind of frame them in the industry, like low trust environments are where you can actually, you can realize benefit because you don't need to have a pre-existing trust relationship between parties, you know, and a blockchain can help because of the immutability of the record, because you can actually prove that something went in and stayed in or that if it got modified, you can have a record for all of that that is, again, as we say, immutable, that can actually enhance trust in situations where it doesn't usually exist. So, but, you know, a lot of times if you're engaging with a partner, you do have a relationship with them already. You do trust them. You do have an established way of doing business that you're, you're it's, you know, it, it kind of winds up being okay. It's good enough. And maybe this would add a little trust to it, but we've seen over the past, you know, five years or so, okay, the circumstances maybe were not as common as maybe some of us had thought. So over time, I think as we come up with new models, there's like there are going to be companies and businesses in this in this area that built on the back of blockchain we can't even imagine right now. The way that when the internet was built, we couldn't imagine social media, right? We couldn't imagine. We don't even know what that is yet, but those are definitely coming and they are going to be built on top of an architecture that involves a blockchain as a critical component. What they are, I couldn't possibly say. If I knew, I would go, you know, <laughs> probably go and found them myself and try to build them. <laughs> it's going to be a very lucrative exactly. industry, that's for sure. <laughs> Right. So um, I was intrigued by your anti-corruption project in Colombia, mm-hmm. where the the details of contracts and bids and so forth could be shared so that people could discover whether or not there was corruption. Um, mm-hmm. Is that project up and running now or what stage is it at? But I, I just thought that was very intriguing. Thanks. We thought so too. You know, and I think the the motivation there was to basically indicate that you need policy in order to effectively use a blockchain in this kind of environment, right? So a blockchain can make certain information transparent, particularly a transaction moment. That does not necessarily mean that anyone's accountable. 
Just because you have transparency doesn't mean there's accountability. That's right. Right? And the question becomes, how do you take that transparency, that new transparency, and create accountability mechanisms around it? Like that is kind of, in my mind, the critical question. Because just, I'm a lawyer, right? So there's this concept in the the law and litigation of a data dump. Someone's like, ah, you got to show me everything you've got. And you're like, I'll show you everything I've got. Here's a room full of boxes and only one piece of paper in that whole room is actually important for what you're looking for, but you get all of it, right? Transparency alone does not give you accountability. Okay, then that point. So in Colombia, the idea was, okay, so let's say we could actually create some sort of system that would enable us to spot corruption. Then what happens? What is the mechanism for remedying that? Right. What is that? So that's where some of that is focused right now is in that policy component, which of course is with the government, because they have to kind of think about what are those, what are the indicators, what are the triggers, you know, et cetera. And so this system was set up and designed basically. Uh, it was one of the few, very few builds you know, that we did. And the idea there was um, to demonstrate how this transparency could exist and how it could be valuable and how you could provide access to that information to a variety of different players, right? But also to say, and then what? And then what? You know, what happens next? So that right now is, um, there's a lot of interesting policy discussions that were sparked because of that experiment that are now happening, not just in Colombia, but into other places around the world that tracked and follow that experiment and are now interested to say, how can we take advantage of the transparency aspects of a, a blockchain and use them to create new incentives, uh, new accountability, new recourse, you know, et cetera, in our systems where we know corruption is running rampant. So I find that to be powerful. We're excited to see what's going to be sparked, what's already been sparked and what will continue to be sparked because of this. Right. It's like um, um, uh, invention and innovation. Innovation is a process. Yeah. That's right. And that's, exactly. mm-hmm. This was meant to be a catalyst, right, sense. for certain kinds of conversations, right. which is exactly what it's proven mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. Now with COVID, there's, and, you know, the world getting back into gear and people traveling, there's a lot of talk about digital passports and, you know, immunity past identities. Um, what do you think of that movement? Do you think, I mean, I know a lot of people worry about that in terms of privacy um, and there's issues there, um, but um I think identity is difficult in the third world too. There are many people who don't have any a regular identity um, that they can, uh, a legal identity, let alone a digital one. Will they leapfrog, you know, in those cases? Do you see that as something very positive? So you, especially women, you would be able to know if they were immunized or not, for example. Well, I think just in your question, you touched on how incredibly complicated the situation is, right? Um, so I'll say two things, I think. Uh, one is the core question is identity, to your point. And so just to pull that out a bit, you know, we don't have a coherent system for digital identity in the world. We don't have a protocol around that and how it's really run. And that is a layer, I think, that when we solve, we'll see an explosion in the uptake of blockchain distributed ledger. We'll see an uptake in the possibilities, you know, for including this kind of thing in your tech stack. And we'll see kind of a, a new... Uh, I don't know, a new way of interacting almost with each other and with institutions, right? Based on this, this uh, self-sovereign or other identity, whatever the capacity, whatever the, whatever it ends up looking like. Uh, we're not there yet. And so that's kind of number one. And part of the reason we're not there yet is, again, this concern about privacy, because you want to be able to sort of, the example often used is, you know, if I go to the bar and I show the bartender my ID to prove that I'm of age or whatever it is, they can see my birth date, my address, you know, all kinds of information. They don't need any of that information to know that I am actually 
right, of age, that they don't need to see any of that. And yet that's what I, that's what I have right now. So similarly with these identifications, the idea is you shouldn't be able to get access to, you don't even know who I am. You just need to know that I am vaccinated or not to the case you, you brought forward, right? Who has the authority to say that I am vaccinated or not? Is it me? Is it a health authority? Is it my doctor? Is it the state? Like who is actually able to verify that I am a person that, you know, should have this card? What kinds of identification? Is it biometrics? Is it my thumbprint? Is it something I carry? Is it some sort of app I can only download on a phone that I only I can access? And there's all, I, it's just, there's a lot of different questions that go into this, but it really fundamentally comes down to your point to privacy. And how do we feel about the fact that we don't want our, we're, we're very allergic at, at, in the Western world to our information floating around there, like people having access to it. Even if that gets us something that we want, we still have almost a philosophical aversion to it, more than I would say a practical aversion, because people give their information away every single day and don't even think twice about it. And then when they're told they've done that, they get all out of whack. They just On do Facebook. It without- <laughs> they do it all the time, all the time. I'm, I'm, ex- I'm an ex-privacy lawyer and I do it all the time. I do it all the time too, right? So um, it, it, is, it is an interesting, you know, cognitive dissonance that happens there is fascinating. So um, what do I think about vaccine passports? Well, I'll say this. I, I certainly understand everyone is eager to get back in the air and travel and all this kind of stuff. What I worry about is that we are going to over-index on the vaccine and travel use case, not even the health use case, the vaccine and travel use case. Right. And we're going to create principles. Okay around identity and privacy that work in that context, but that don't make sense in the context of financial services or, you know, whatever else it might be, or, or even broader health, right? There Or credentialing or other kinds of credentials, educational credentials. But because we had that system built, we're just going to say, oh, that worked well enough. Now we'll just use it for everything. That is what I am most concerned about in this space, right? Because that's just, right, the same way that we kind of built AIs, for example, and then we all of a sudden we were like, oh, uh oh, we didn't mean to do that. And now look, it's everywhere. Oops. You know, that could happen here very, very, very quickly. And without our even realizing that we're doing it, without even realizing what the problems are, because it will work well in the vaccine travel use case. So we'll think, oh, it works for everything. So this is, this is my broader concern around digital identity as a general matter and around these so-called vaccine passports. Now, all that being said, you know, there's a very political question here, and it's going to wind up being very political as well, which is the question around, you know, do people feel like they want to hold their citizens accountable for this vaccination or not? Views on that widely vary. They vary municipality to municipality and state to state. And even, I'm talking the United States, let alone country to country. Are the standards the same? Will we kind of see this inequity play out from the standpoint of there are parts of the world that can't get access to vaccines? Will there be this kind of two-tiered system where some vaccines are better than other vaccines and so you get more access if you have one kind of vaccine or another? You know, it just could go just go wrong in about a billion different ways. So that is what I'm hesitant about primarily, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. In other words, it's extremely complicated. It's extremely there is no simple answer. <laughs> the technology doesn't solve all these social problems and, Correct. and issues that and people have. And political problems, right? It doesn't. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of uh, uh, ESG, energy use, sustainability, mm-hmm. what can blockchain do to help those goals along? Um, do you think they'll be integral to achieving those kinds of goals is really my question. Yeah, well, this is certainly the topic of the moment. You know, there's a tremendous amount of uh, attention being paid to Bitcoin mining and green bonds and decarbonization and the systems. 
And so, you know, I think that it behooves every industry, not just the crypto industry, to be thinking about environment sustainability, how we can, you know, um, be reducing our consumption of fossil fuels, how we can be greening things to use kind of more generic term. I think that is not isolated to the crypto industry is kind of one point. We are looking, we are creating something called the Crypto Impact and Sustainability Accelerator, which is a big set of initiatives that are looking at exactly this question, right? So it's like green bonds on a blockchain. Okay, we can kind of track decarbonization on a blockchain. Does that make sense? Uh, crypto mining itself, you know, proof of work mining. Uh, how do we get that more renewable? What are the metrics there? How do we track progress? But I think that, and I, I know this wasn't quite your question, but I'll address it because it's so um, timely in, the, in you know, the broader, I think, ecosystem these days. There's this concept I find really bizarre about, you know, comparing, let's look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining to this uses more energy than X and X is something like the economy of Argentina, you know, or it's something like um, gold mining. It's less than gold mining, but it's more than, I just find all of that to be unproductive because it's predicated on the assumption that you would somehow eliminate crypto, that it would just sort of go away. You'd be like, oh, okay, so it's not as good as X, therefore, therefore what? It's not going away. It's been around for over a decade. It's only getting traction, you know? So the question is really, the productive question is, how do we do better as an industry? That is the productive question. And there are a lot of things that are being done and can be done to help crypto and, and blockchain in general be more green, right? There's a lot that can be done. And that, in my mind, is how do we measure progress against goals and targets and demonstrate using real metrics and real data that there are improvements happening? Not trying to say, well, because this thing is not as good as that thing, therefore we throw the whole thing out. Like it'd be as if with automotive, we said, okay, well, these cars, you know, are, they still use a lot of whatever energy, therefore cars should just go away. And no one's saying that. And no one's even saying that you have to use an EV and not, you know. It's a gradual almost transition to something that is more energy intensive or less energy intensive, rather more energy efficient, but you have to kind of experiment, figure that out. And as an industry, commit to making a transition to something that is better. That is what I think a blockchain can help do because you can track some of that decarbonization and progress using this technology in ways that, where there's a, that again, to my earlier point, you can build in the accountability that that transparency or information can provide. Right. But that has to be structure. It doesn't come in automatically. Just because you can see it doesn't mean anything happens because of the information's there. You have to figure out what are the consequences. What are the consequences there? And that is what I think is challenging. It's really challenging, but there's a lot of activity going into that space. So I'm, I feel optimistic, including ours. So I feel very optimistic. Yeah. Uh, you know, a couple of decades ago when we had peak oil and, you know, the oil price was yeah. such a, that drove innovation in the shale industry. And That's actually, right. the outcome of that was that America became energy self-sufficient. So I think that this could also, it's, it's bringing a subject we should be talking about front and center and yeah. everybody makes choices about their use of energy. And I think the U S military is the biggest user of energy in the United States, by the way. So, but that's a choice we make to protect ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So we have to make choices and there's stranded energy and all of that. So it's a, that's also a very complicated, you know, topic. So um, how could cryptocurrencies and blockchain help with one of the biggest problems we have today is inequality all over the mm -hmm. world. Every It's just enormous issue. How could this help to alleviate um, or create more financial inclusiveness? Is there a, a really beneficial side? I mean, everybody talks about, you know, some kids becoming millionaire, millionaire Bitcoin millionaires overnight and so <laughs> forth. 
but is there another side that's more, you know, that's, that, that is more inclusive to this technology? Yeah. You know, I think, uh, on my own podcast, we've really tried to, uh, point out cases where there's just a lot of opportunity here, you know, where, where, where cryptocurrency is being used actively, where it's provided economic opportunity, other opportunity, you know, to various actors. We've looked at a case with human rights in Sudan. We looked at Nigeria and FinTech. We're looking, we talked about Haiti. We talked about, um, how Cambodia is kind of looking at a new form of digital currency, not quite a CBDC, but similar, uh, which looked at, we're kind of looking around the world and spotlighting Argentina, you know, some of these cases, um, the world is not the U.S. and China, right? There's a lot of other places in the world. And so in my mind, I feel like there is potential here, strong potential. And I think a lot of people have this instinct, this gut instinct around financial inclusion. But I want to be very clear, technology is only part of the problem. There are infrastructure issues. There are, you know, education concerns. There are access concerns. There are all kinds of other things that go into this. And to say that there's there's no technological silver bullet for anything ever. That is not a thing. That's not that there's no such thing. It is always having to be contextualized in the environment and to say, what is the enabling environment that has to exist for this technology to gain traction? In some parts of the world, it's a little easier, you're a little further along. I look at Nigeria as an example of this. In other parts of the world, it's harder. You know, I actually think that in some cases in the U.S., like making the case for cryptocurrency as a means of as a, uh, exchange is actually a little bit more challenging because our dollar is stable, our economy is stable, it's secure, people trust it. You know, you don't necessarily need to use something like this. So um, here, you know, it's seen more as like an investment vehicle. So um, I think that there is tremendous potential. We are just at the beginning of unlocking some of that. And again, I, I feel optimistic about where that might where that might go. What do you worry about most other than the lack, the failure to implement, to live up to the promise that the procedures, the processes don't happen? Um, is it overregulation? We didn't have that with the yeah. internet. Um, is it taxation prematurely? What is it that worries you that could, you know, stop yeah. momentum? I, I do worry about, you know, premature regulation. Like regulating something we don't yet understand is one of the best ways to kill innovation. And even as you, as we've seen in recent you know, week or a couple of days, uh, this is an area that's hyper responsive to even the hint of regulation, you know, that could be uh, negative. Now, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think some regulation is necessary. To be clear, I'm not anti-regulation at all. And I think that we have been fortunate over the past, you know, five years or so to actually have a number of very educated regulators uh, in, in various jurisdictions who really know what they're talking about and are quite savvy. But at any moment, you could kind of get something passed that all of a sudden just kills off an entire avenue of growth. And I'm particularly worried about that in the context of financial inclusion, to your point. So that's what I think. Nothing keeps me up at night that doesn't have to do with my children. But, you know, I'm fortunate to have that sort of focus. But <laughs> I do think that, you know, if, if yes. there was something to keep me up at night about this, it would be the idea that we might prematurely regulate something before it had a chance to really... Um, take root and that we would uh, wind up harming the very people I think can be most helped by these innovations. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us. Um, how can our audience follow you? And do you have a book in, uh, that you're planning on? I would love to read something that you wrote. <laughs> oh, you're too kind. You longer know, I, form. So I get asked that all the time and I think when I, I want to write one someday. But yeah, the best way to get a hold of me right now or to, to follow me is on Twitter. Uh, I'm just at Sheila underscore Warren. Also on our podcast, which is so kindly noted, Money Reimagined, which is available wherever anyone subscribes to podcasts, like they're listening to yours. Uh, and that's on the Coindesk Networks. Those are the two areas where I'm very active. Um, well, most active, I'd say right now. 
a book someday, someday, maybe, maybe a year from now. <laughs> I would love to do that. Okay. So thank we'll you. Be, really then I'll fun. have you back and we'll, we'll, we'll do <laughs> a podcast about your book. Okay. Thank <laughs> you wonderful. so much. Thank you.